Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. In this week's episode, we'll be breaking down results from Slovakia's parliamentary election and also be looking at the end of the progressive conservative reign in Manitoba, whilst asking the big question, what were the factors that elected the first ever First Nations person to lead a Canadian province? It's Sunday the 15th of October 2023. Pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide but unify. Not now. I am not a fighter and not a fighter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends. A real change. Let's keep moving. Slava Ukraine! Joining me on the other side of the world to break down all of this, as always, is my co host Chern. How are you doing, Chern? I'm doing very well, thank you. And um, happy birthday to Ballad to talk about. We just passed our third birthday, isn't it? We've been doing exactly. this for three years. Happy birthday, indeed. Happy birthday. And it's a fitting weekend to celebrate our birthday as well, because there is so much politics going on this weekend. There are, we had the Australian voice referendum yesterday, the New Zealand parliamentary election yesterday, the Polish election today. It's also the second round of the Ecuadorian presidential election today. So, so much to talk about um, that we're actually playing catch up a little bit, because as I said in the intro, we're talking about Slovakia, which held their um, parliamentary election just over a fortnight ago, but finally have a government. So it's actually fitting time to talk about Slovakia. And then also Manitoba, who also had their election um, within the last two weeks. So, yeah, a lot to unpack, Chern, but um, it's a fitting weekend indeed to do it, isn't it? And considering all the news that's been happening, all the very bad news, I thought a milestone celebration uh, was is, is definitely a, 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 a nice feather in the cap. And thank you to all the countries who continue to hold democratic elections for us to keep being able to talk about it. But yes, so let's start in Slovakia, where, um, and as you say, we are on a slight time lag and we'll be on a slight time lag for the next couple of weeks. And sometimes it is good being on a slight time lag because we will have a better idea in many of these countries what kind of government formation will be. And that very much is the case in Slovakia, which is on course for dramatic changes in domestic and foreign policy based on the results from the parliamentary elections that took place on the 30th of September. For the 150 seats for the National Council, you therefore need 76 seats for majority. A smear led by former Prime Minister Robert Fico was the clear winner of the election. He got 42 seats, up four with 23% of the vote. Progressive Slovakia entered the parliament with its leader Mikhail Simica, who got 32 seats with an 18% share of the vote. Voice, led by former another former Prime Minister Peter Pellegrini, also entered the parliament with 27 seats and 15% of the vote. Olano, which represented the, which was led by another former Prime Minister, Igor Mitovic, um, with 16 seats down 49, with 9% of the vote. But I'm not sure what you think, Sam. I think considering the circumstance of the last four years, that's actually a pretty good result. Um, the Christian Democrats have 12 seats up 12, with 7% of the vote. SAS with 11 seats down 2, with 6% of the vote. And the far-right Slovak National Party got 10 seats up entering parliament with 5.6% of the vote. 
and we should note that both far-right parties, Republica and SLNS, and alongside right-wing populist party, We Are Family, alongside the, uh, the Democrats, just led by another former prime minister, all failed to enter the parliament. And Sam, first of all, um, the top four parties are all led by former prime ministers. That gives you an idea of the level of turmoil, isn't it? Well, exactly, exactly. It's been quite a turbulent few years for Slovakian politics, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Indeed. And and in terms of coalitions, it looks very much likely that Smear uh, will form a government with voice and the far-right Soviet National Party, which together will have a slim 79 seats in the 150-seat chamber. So let's start, Sam, our analysis, as we always do. What is your reaction when you saw these results compared to the preview episode? I mean, I think my initial reaction was a little bit surprised at how well um, Smear did. I mean, we were all talking about the fact that Robert Fico's party was pretty well positioned going into this election and was certainly going to be one of the main two contenders for government because we thought this election was going to be incredibly tight between the two wings of Slovakian politics. I think the progressive Slovakia will be disappointed um, that they weren't really in a position to form any kind of stable government um, to be a, com- a, a competitor from the off with Robert Fico. But at the same time, I think you can't be hugely surprised with this result because the two things we thought would be the case absolutely were the case. One, it was close and no party thumped this election. Two, Peter Pellegrini's um, voice party was the kingmaker. And both of those things I think you would have called before this election began. Certainly the last one, I think. I think you're absolutely right there. That And, and Peter Pellegrini was decision to go into with Smear, sealed the coalition, really. And uh, if he had opted for another decision, I think it would be interesting to see how Soviet politics goes. But we're definitely sitting here because... Rob, um, Peter Pellegrini opted to go for his former boss. He was obviously, um, as we said in the preview, Peter Pellegrini was a former prime minister from Smear and worked, uh, uh, worked un- as a minister under Robert Fico's government, but he suddenly decided to back Robert Fico and return to government. But let's start there, Sam. Why do you think um, Smear overperformed, particularly the, the exit polls? Because I look at the exit polls, it seemed to me that they certainly got the results off compared to what actually happened because the exit polls were talking about the uh, progressive Slovakia being about 20 to 24% and Smear being behind on 19 to 21%. An actual case, actually, it could be argued that the opinion polls, the last couple of opinion polls were actually closer to the outcome. Yeah, firstly, I just want to qualify the overperformance because it is an overperformance relative to opinion polls going into it and the exit polls. But in terms of the performance of Smear in general, it's not a great performance for them historically because the 2020 election was a disaster. Um, But even this result was their second worst since 2002 in terms of both seats and vote share. So this is not a good performance for Smear. But yes, it was an overperformance relative to a slightly overperformance relative to what we were expecting going in. Um, I think there's a handful of explanations. So on one side, you have an explanation of why did Smear do well in the first place, and then on the other hand, you have why did Smear do particularly well on polling day. I'm going to answer the last one first, um, which I think a lot of it 
comes from the Republican Party failing to cross the 5% threshold, because going into the election, they were polling as high as 8 or 9% and ended up not even getting 5%. So that 4, 3, 4% more than likely went to Smear because they share quite a lot of policy positions. They're very ideologically close and also historically have performed equally well in the same parts of Slovakia. We talked last time about how Slovakia's votes tend to be quite geographically concentrated. Well, in the places where Smer did well, were also the places where Republika did particularly well. So I think there is some explanation that Republika voters flocked back to Smer because they saw the risk that there was going to be a progressive Slovakia government on the table. So I think that is one explanation as to why polling day went better than expected for Smer. But that's also with the backdrop of this election and the issues that were at stake, because we talked last time about how only 40% of Slovaks believe Russia to be primarily responsible for the war in Ukraine, the lowest percentage in Central and Eastern Europe. Well, when you've got a party whose one of their central pledges was halting financial and military aid to Ukraine in this conflict, I think you then become less surprised that they did particularly well. And also migration was a huge hot button issue for Robert Fico. Well, figures just released last month suggested that in the first eight months of 2023, there was approximately 24,500 illegal migrants making their way either into Slovakia or through Slovakia on the way to other European countries. Um, and yes, it was it was mostly that transitional kind of migration. But FICO's campaign centering around the quantity of illegal migrants and people being sympathetic to that and people seeing that in practice, you then again become less surprised that Robert FICO did particularly well in this election. What do you think, Chern? I, I think, first of all, on the on on this uh, tactical voting, there's no other way of saying among far-right parties, probably Republican part voters who support Smear, I totally agree with you. I think that a lot of Republicans, I think even to a lesser extent, we are family, because we are family. There were some polls that were putting above the 5% threshold that they both, that if that party and Republican failed to get into parliament because their voters tactically voted for uh, Smear because of the fear of progressive Slovakia. Kind of speaks to what we were saying, is that you are more voting against one other party rather than necessarily voting for a party. And... You, I, and you're right about Ukraine. Um, I, I definitely think that that resonated as well. I also think that, you know, Robert Fico ran on three things, stability, order, and sovereignty from liberal, liberal threats. And I think stability and order, considering the chaos of Soviet politics, which we covered so much in our preview episode, you know, him was he was in the opposition to that. I think he was a primary beneficiary of that. You cannot deny it. I saw some vote transfer data where a lot of Olano supporters voted for Smear. And I don't think that that necessarily is an ideology thing. I think it was just an anti-establishment thing fueled by some of the chaos that happened over the last three years of Slovak politics as well. Um, the one thing I would say about Robert Fico as well is that he is, in this election, was popular. Uh, in... In, in Slovakia, the electoral system meant you voted for candidates, not necessarily parties in itself. And voters got to express four preferences. So if you just simply add all these figures up, you will get more than a population, but because voters can express four 
preferences, but Robert Fico was the most voted candidate. He got 531,528 personal votes. The second most popular person was Peter Pellegrini, who got 337,976 votes ahead of the progressive Slovakia leader, uh, Michael Semita, who got 303,423 votes. It was notable that the fourth and fifth most popular options were also smear candidates as well. So I think that really shows is that the polling power of Robert Fico, because he got more, 200,000 more votes than Peter Pellegrini, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't seen those numbers. Chen, I want to talk about um, The Voice, um, HLAS and Peter Pellegrini, because it is interesting to me that you had an election which seemed to be people flocking to certain preferred coalition arrangements in this um, in the outcome of this election. But Peter Pellegrini broke from Smear, broke from his former um, boss, Robert Fico, to form this alternative party. He gained 15% of the vote for doing so. And yet then, when there were different options on the table, chose to go back to his former boss, who he broke away from just within the last three years. Where do you think that decision came from? So I have to credit um, thread I saw that Simon Hicks asked this exact same question as well for the answer. And I think there's the official reason and there is the unofficial reason. So the official reason by Hasley to Peter Pellegrini was that he was, when he announced his backing smear, was he viewed a coalition with progressive Slovakia, Christian Democrats and SAS to be untenable because members of this potential coalition were already attacking each other days after the election. And you really saw that with the Christian Democrats itself because they refused to work with progressive Slovakia and they declared that they wanted to go into opposition because the progressive Slovakia rejected one of its um, demands, which is restrictions on abortion access, which is something I don't think progressive Slovakia mm. with a social liberal base will ever swallow. So I, so I think that gave... That that infighting between the Christian Democrats and Progressive Slovakia gave Peter Pellegrini the excuse to announce it, mm. and I think it's unofficial. And let's reason... also let's also not forget that um, Progressive Slovakia spent a lot of this campaign in the last three years criticizing the former Smer government, of which Pe Peter Pellegrini was not only a central figure in, but for a period of time he was the prime minister of. I, I think you're absolutely right. I didn't pick up on that, but you're absolutely right that that is probably a key point as well. But the third thing that I was reading about was detailed to how Voice was formed in the first place. Because the formation of Voice by former Prime Minister Peter Pellegrini was only because he thought that Smear would collapse and there was quite anecdotal evidence that could happen following in 2018 the murder of the investigative journalist and his fiance and the unleashing of the huge street protest that led Robert Fico to step down in the first place. And where Smear was polling in 2020, the doldrums of where it was at that stage, there was a lot of thought that Smear would collapse. And, you know, Robert Fico himself was still unwilling to give up power. So I a lot of people thought that it was opportunistic for Voice and Peter Pellegrini to then form a spin-off as such, um, to try and retain some of those social democratic voters who still like Robert Fico and some of his policies, really. Um, but that didn't be the case. And, 
you know, smear, live to survive another day. Largely, I would say, you know, events regarding the pandemic, you know, the war in Ukraine, Slovakia as well, um, and the chaos of Slovakian politics. So there's the official reason of coalition infighting, but there's the unofficial reason where I think Peter Pan and Greece suddenly miscalculated, thought that smear would collapse. That didn't happen. And therefore, um, he was always much more willing to go back with Robert Fico in that case. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I also had an official reason and an unofficial reason, both of which are different to your official and unofficial reasons. So I think there's a lot of explanations here because the official reason I had was a quote from Peter Pellegrini that said, we no longer have the time or luxury to have a government that is learning to govern, um, expressing that going with Robert Fico, former prime minister, um, was potentially a more stable arrangement. And also the alternative was also always going to be a challenge because Alano were very quick to say they wanted to return to opposition. So you were only left, as you said, with an option that was progressive Slovakia, Voice and the Christian Democrats, who all have very different ideological approaches to how Slovakia should be governed. So I imagine putting together a coalition agreement between those three parties was always going to be a nightmare. And then you have the other unofficial reason, which has been mostly peddled, I must say, by progressive Slovakia, but I think there is some truth in it, which is that um, the corruption investigations play a role, because Peter Pellegrini and his allies were central figures in the Smear government who have all been subject to investigations um, linked to corruption and um, how the Smear governments behaved prior to 2020. Um, and yes, Peter Pellegrini seems pretty confident that he personally is not involved in this, but the investigations were so wide-ranging that he was at least going to be questioned about it. And now, siding with his former ally Robert Fico, it's more than likely that these investigations will come to a pretty swift conclusion. Ah, it's interesting. We've both come up with official and unofficial reasons for why uh, voice side of it smear. Sam, two things I wanted to ask you. Um, and this was in a particularly in the backdrop of reading about the coverage posts about it. But you said you had an interesting stat about SNS. Let's talk about the other coalition partners. I would love to hear it. But more broadly than that, what do you think is the role of disinformation play in Slovakian politics and particularly this election itself? I read a what do you think about its impact has been? I think the impact has been reasonably um high because you have seen all of the parties pretty much take the more extreme version of what their position has been historically in Slovakian politics. So you've got Robert Fico and Smear, arguably through the prism of Ukraine, becoming much more pro-Eastern than pro-Western than they have ever been in, in Parliament before. I mean, I saw this week that the Party of European Socialists, the big umbrella group within the European Parliament, have voted to suspend both Smear and um, HLAS from their group because of their positions on particular things that that group hold dear, Ukraine being one, rule of law being another, and LGBT rights being another. But the fact that Smear has always been able to be a part, member of the Party of European Socialists pre previously and now in their new form have been kicked out, I think is just one illustration of how the ideological divisions in Slovakian politics have seemed to expand quite dramatically over the last few years. And I think disinformation has played a big role in sort of consolidating more 
extreme versions of the policies that these parties seek to seek to put in place. Yeah, I think I think you. I mean, just to give you a scale of the disinformation campaign, uh, the London non-profit Reset have registered over three hundred sixty-five thousand election-related disinformation items in the first two weeks of September. Pretty astonishing number. Um, Robert Fico himself had warned of a potential for vote rigging, admits and and I think what's particularly key as well is that the environment of Slovakia is particularly prone to disinformation or fertile ground for disinformation campaigns to grow. You talked about Russia's successful attempts, I think, to influence the narrative uh, regarding its invasion of Ukraine. And I noted that Robert Fico said that Russia's war in Ukraine had begun in 2014 when Ukrainian fascists attacked Russia, for example. Um, and I got another interesting stat when and you talked about was that in 2022, a survey found 54% of Slovaks believe that world affairs were decided by secret groups aiming to establish a totalitarian world order. So leading into the world economic forum conspiracy theories there. So I think disinformation did play a role in potentially helping to amplify and spread Robert Fico's message in this campaign as well. So obviously, Chern, we've alluded to it throughout the discussion so far, but one of the things that has been cited by most international observers of this is that this election and this new government will mark quite a significant change in domestic and foreign policy of Slovakia, notably towards um, the war in Ukraine and adopting a more pro East position than a pro-West position as its previous government. Peter Pellegrini has, though, said that one of the terms of this coalition agreement is that if that stands towards being pro-EU and pro-NATO does shift, then he'll withdraw his members from the coalition. But whatever happens, even within that framework, we are expecting a change in, in Slovakia's domestic and foreign policy approach. You're right. I think it will have, this election will have lots of consequences, not least we saw in the immediate aftermath, the president of Slovakia, Susanna Kapitova, which until the election and the incumbent caretaker administration admitted that they were preparing another military aid package to Slovakia. But Susanna Kapitova said because of the election results that they were not going to proceed. So you had immediate foreign policy impact of it. And Peter Pellegrini did say that, um, did adopt a more nuanced position on the Russia-Ukraine war. He said that ammunition supplies to Ukraine are good for Slovakian industry and back the EU stance on the invasion itself. Um, I would say the biggest winner of this election is uh, Viktor Orban. He's got a fellow person who's likely to, um, to espouse similar views to him in a sense that they want to be in the EU and NATO while simultaneously attacking it for domestic purposes. And I think on a domestic front is where you will see some of the biggest impact of this election still. Whilst it has foreign policy impacts on Ukraine, for example, I do see that domestically there will be potentially um, the, the Viktor Orban playbook of impacts on the rule of law, corruption we talked about, and LGBT rights will all be facing under severe pressure over the next couple of years over Robert Fico mandate. It is, for example, interesting that Robert Fico mocked LGBTQ people in the lead up to this referendum, saying that Michael Semita, quote, identified as a boy, girl or helicopter, according to his view. Um, so I think a lot of the impact will be domestic politics about how it is 
will be impacted as in any election. But in foreign policy wise, definitely we've seen impact on Ukraine. I'm curious, Sam, how do you think the EU is going to approach Robert Fico? I mean, I think I think the EU impact is quite significant. I know we talked when we previewed the Polish election about how one of the issues at stake in the Polish election was Hungary having an ally who would avoid the European Union triggering Article 7 of the Treaty on European Union. Well, now it's likely that Slovakia is another player in that debate, where it's going to be quite difficult for the EU to take any action against Hungary whilst Robert Fico is Prime Minister of Slovakia. So I think those are that's an impact there. And because of that, I think the EU are going to have to tread quite delicately because you've now got, on the assumption that Poland stays with the Law and Justice Party, which obviously that's up for election as we speak, um, Polish people are going to the polls. But if you do assume that those three people stay in power, you've got three potential troublemakers in the European Union and the European Union is going to have to respond accordingly without having to, without being able to take any administrative action against those members for, for that pushback. So it will be an interesting dynamic. I agree. It will be an interesting dynamic itself. I mean, the one glimmer of hope the EU has is that Robert Fico in his previous mandate it could be described as more pragmatic in some, certainly some of his um, dealings with Europe, but that you know, but that was part of history. And I think the new Robert Fico will be very different from the past Robert Fico in terms of how he governs the country. Hmm. And before we leave Slovakia, Chern, I said that I had a statistic for you about the Slovak Nationalist Party, and I'll I'll give you that as our last little gem on Slovakia which is I think they'll be hoping that they play a large enough role in this coalition to gain some more seats next time around. Because if you look at the recent electoral history of the Slovak Nationalist Party, it doesn't particularly bode well for them going into the next election because all the way back to 2002, where they were extra parliamentary, 2006, 20 seats, 2010, 9 seats, 2012, no seats, 2016, 15 seats, 2020, no seats, 2023, 10 seats. So if this is anything to go by, in 2027, the Slovak Nationalist Party will be sitting outside of Parliament. So I think they'll be hoping to uh, to make an impact this time around. Well, that's a fantastic statistic there. Um, I've got one final thought to leave you on. Um, another reason why Peter Pellegrini could have said yes. Um, the coalition negotiations have just concluded and Smear will receive six ministries, including the Prime Minister, SNS will see three, and Hess, for its part, despite being significantly smaller, will receive seven ministries and a Speaker of Parliament. Leave that as you will. So, Chern, the other election we were going to talk about today was the provincial election that took place in Manitoba, Canada. In the Legislative Assembly in Manitoba, there are 57 seats, which means that a party requires 29 seats for an overall majority in that parliament. The outgoing government was the Progressive Conservatives, led by Premier Heather Stephenson. They were going for a third term for the Conservatives in Manitoba, but they were beaten by the New Democrats and their leader, Wab Kinyu, who in turn becomes the first First Nations Premier of Manitoba. The party will have 34 seats, which is just under doubling their seats from last time, with 45.5% of the vote, an increase of 144 
The Progressive Conservatives lost 13 seats, down to 22, with 42.1% of the vote. And then the Liberal Party, who certainly in recent historical elections have not performed well in Manitoba, are down two seats to just one seat um, and 10.6% of the vote. And one of their two seats they lost included their leader, Doug Old Lamont, who has since announced that he is standing down as, as leader of the Liberal Party in Manitoba. So, Chern... It's, it's different to the federal composition of Canada, but what are your reactions to the Manitoba election? Um, not that surprised. I think suddenly in the last couple of opinion polls, Lee, it did point towards the NDP coming back um, it, into government. But I still think for an outgoing government, I mean, if we compare it to the 2016 election, so that was the election in which the progressive conservatives uh, came into power, the NDP was smashed in that election. They only won 14 seats and 26% of the vote. And compared to the last time in which um, this is kind of a similar result as when they last were kicked out of office in 1999, when the NDP first won, where they got 41% share of the vote and 24 seats under the then outgoing Premier Gary Fillmore. I think this is a result that's very similar to 1999 in many ways. Um, but what was interesting about that was that the PCs at that stage were only going for a fourth term. Whereas in this case, they were going for their third term, and the first term was only three years long. They cut it a year short to go for an early election. So I think in the general context, it's not that unsurprising. And we'll dig out into more details about why. But I still think that this is a shorter PC government than one would necessarily expect in the first place. What do you think, Sam? Yes and no. I mean, my my headline reaction to this uh, result is not surprised because Canada's most unpopular provincial premier has left office. Um, and that is the headline because Heather Stephenson, throughout her two years as premier of, of Manitoba, she's persistently been the lowest scoring premier um, across the country in Canada. And in fact, her approval rating going into this election at 28% was actually a personal best of Heather Stephenson because it's persistently improved from the low 20s from when she took office two years ago. So I think with that context, you can't particularly be surprised that this um, that the Progressive Conservatives have less office. And for the NDP, I think it's a good result because especially following the disappointment from Alberta, where they thought Rachel Notley was potentially going to become the Premier of Alberta, and they missed out quite dramatically there, even though it was um, the narrowest majority in Albertan history. But to get over the line, I think, in Manitoba will be good news for the NDP federally. Yeah, well, I think we'll talk about federal implications later, because I think all three parties have something to learn about from this election campaign. Um, so we'll go on to the federal implications later, but I wanted to delve into the historic making aspect of this. Obviously, Heather Stephenson is the first female premier of Manitoba, and she's giving way to the first First Nations person to ever lead a Canadian province, Rap Canoe. But Sam, I thought you would like to comment about the, new, the, the efficiency or the inefficiency, I would say, of the progressive conservative vote. Because the difference in share of the vote, the NDP got 45.5%. The PCs got 42.1% of the votes. So that's the difference about three and a half percentage points. And in raw vote terms, I'm talking less than 20,000 votes in terms of raw votes. But Sam, that has yielded a difference of 12 seats and, major and 
which is quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that is first past the post um, in a nutshell, because that's what that electoral system produces. And the reason it's so different is because if you rewind the clock to the last election, the Progressive Conservatives did pretty well in Winnipeg, where most of the seats in Manitoba are um, in, in, the sub, in the urban centre and suburbs of Winnipeg. Well, this time, the NDP pretty much swept Winnipeg across the board, um, even winning some of those seats uh, for the first time in quite a number of electoral cycles. And some of those seats they didn't win by very much, which I think is the explanation for the huge difference between the percentage of votes both parties got versus the seats they got from that is just because the progressive conservatives narrowly lost out in quite a number of seats in winnipeg where most of the seats in manitoba are um, and i think that's that's the explanation for that and tends to be the explanation to be honest of most countries where first the past the post takes place because you see this in the uk is that the labor vote recently has been incredibly inefficient because they rack up votes in the urban centers and narrowly miss out on most of the marginals and don't play a role at all in most of the rural seats the opposite is true here of the ndp in this election and that's why i think they've been able to be uber efficient versus the inefficiency of the progressive conservatives and I should say as well that the NDP way through Manitoba, uh, through Winnipeg, nearly took out in Tuxedo, who was the riding of the outgoing Premier Heather Stephenson. She won by 263 votes, um, or 2.6%. And so, and that, if it, that seat had fallen, that seat had never been held by somebody who didn't become a Premier of, uh, a progressive conservative premier. It was held by Gary Filmon from 1981 to 2000. Heather Stephenson took over in 2000 and is still the MLA for it. So quite an astonishing result in Winnipeg in general. And it was quite a way through Winnipeg. The, the statistics, and I have to thank um, Eric Granier for the statistics on this, is the NDP won 52% of the vote in Winnipeg and the PCs won 33%. So that's a 19% gap in Winnipeg where majority of the seats are based. Um, and to give you into context, the 19% margin, the last time the NDP won a majority government in 2011, they only won Winnipeg by 15 points. So in other words, they got they did better in, man, in Winnipeg this election, despite getting overall less seats than in 2011. So I think that's really showing how the NDP vote was uber efficient in getting across the line. And talk about inefficiency. I mean, the Liberals ending up with one seat despite getting 11% of the vote. I think they'd be pretty disappointed in that as well. Yeah, I mean, the Liberals, I mean, I think what's happening with the Liberals is that what has happened in this election is that if you had looked through Manitoba's political history, is that whenever the Progressive Conservatives win government, they often needed a better than expected showing with the Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party really didn't help itself, really. Um, so in 2011, in the last election, the NDP won. The Liberals got 7.5% of the vote. In 2016 and 2019, i.e. the two elections that the Progressive Conservatives won, the Liberals got about 15% of the vote. So I think what has happened here is that the Liberals are on the rising tide and fall of NDP prospects. Whenever the NDP prospects are good, their vote tends to suffer. Whenever their prospects are bad, their vote tends to grow. It speaks of, I suspect, a lot of tactical voting by amongst Liberal supporters um, to vote tactically for the NDP to get the Progressive mm. Conservatives out. 
Yeah, and I mean, before we dive into the main discussion of Manitoba, which is the NDP and the Progressive Conservatives, respectively, I thought it's worth providing a little bit of explanation to some casual observers of Canadian politics as to why the Liberal Party don't do well in Manitoba. And the reason you just provided is one of them, which is they used to be pretty pretty strong in Manitoba up until about the 1950s. They held governments there. They were the primary opposition. They came second persistently. And other than 1988, since then, they've persistently been in, in third place. And one of the reasons cited for it is that in the 1960s, under their new leader, they adopted a more rural, populist, laissez-faire, anti-welfare state platform, which just left the centre-left completely open for the NDP to move into it. And we know, in First Past the Post, it favours a two-party system. And really, the Liberal Party in the 60s shot themselves in the foot by leaving vacant a huge swathe of the Manitoban, Manitoban electorate for the NDP to dive into. And then it took... 10, 20 years for the Liberal Party to return to that ground. And by the time they did return to it, the NDP had capitalised on it completely. And the Liberal Party, with the exception of 1988, where they did really well with 20 seats, have been completely shut out of the centre-left of Manitoban politics. And it's interesting in a country like Canada, which is notorious for its distinction between provincial and federal politics, that the Liberals have not really been able to gain a foothold again in Manitoba. I think I did read that um, the one seat it kind of has Tyndall Park is the only pro- provincial Liberal seat there is to the west of, is the most Western provincial Liberal seat. There are no Liberals in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, which I think is an amazing statistic itself, that the Liberals provincially have been almost wiped out. And what I think is happen, and we saw a bit of this in the Alberta election we covered earlier this year, is that the New Democrats benefited from a united centre-left vote, particularly in Manitoba's case, where there is no further right party. I mean, in Alberta, there is the Wild Rules Independence Party, where and Danielle Smith moved to the right, I think, shut that bit off. But certainly in Manitoba's case, there is no party to the right of the progressive conservatives, and there is a lot of parties to the left of the new, and they're competing in the centre-left. You talk about the Liberals and you talk about the Greens. And I think they were the, the New Democrats are really helped by what the other two main opposition parties decided to do. The Liberals fielded 49 candidates, which I think is astonishing that a major party did not field a full slate of 57 candidates, which it managed to do, by the way, in the last election in 2020, whilst there was a global pandemic. So there's really no excuse for it not to for it to happen this time around. And that left there were only eight contests about New Democrats versus Progressive Conservatives. And one of them brand, saw a direct switch between the um, in Dolphin between the New Democrats to the Progressive Conservatives. And what we do see that the Progressive Conservative vote largely held on, and it was a New Democrat surge from taking all the other votes from the other parties that brought it across the line. The Greens also had a role to play in this. In the last election in 2019, they fielded 43 candidates. They only feel at 13 candidates this time around. And I think I looked at the where the Greens are polled. I think there's only one seat, I think, which could have flipped, which was in Brampton West, if the Greens had pulled out. The rest of them were running in sort of safe NDP or safe PC seats where they didn't really have much of an impact. So I don't think you can discount the possibility of the Greens party pulling out and therefore the centre-left being able to consolidate its votes to explain the outcome we got here. Yeah, I mean, beyond that tactical voting element, let's talk about the victors. 
how did the NDP win this election? I think simply, um, I will say that this election to me, Sam, is more a story of why the progressive conservatives lost rather than why the new Democrats won. Um, but I also think as well is that um, why the new Democrats won was because their entire campaign was focused on healthcare. And what was the number one issue among Manitobans? Healthcare. And the New Democrats therefore had a very useful point of comparison because just before the pandemic, Brian Pallister, who was the pro former progressive conservative leader who led the PCs to victory in 2016 and 2019, he closed emergency departments. And therefore, there was something, a tangible policy difference that the NDP could point to. Um, mm. In fact, during, during the pandemic, the Manitoba's handling of the number of COVID ICU patients got so out of control that they were having to send patients to other Canadian provinces to be treated for COVID because they just did not have the capacity. And that's one of the things that um, Wabkinu was running on quite extensively in this campaign. I also read that people in the north of Manitoba have to travel nearly eight hours to get to the main hospital in Winnipeg. So healthcare clearly um, was a real cut through issue in this election. And I think as well, particularly we saw this as well, that particularly after the pandemic, the politics of how austerity is viewed as, you know, trying to reduce government deficit has really changed. And unfortunately, the progressive conservatives until the pandemic uh, ran a very austerity platform they ha Manitoba does have a budget surplus, but they ran very much on an austerity platform in 2016, 2019, and the need to control government spending, which I don't think, particularly right now, as we know COVID aged governments a lot, I think that, and in combination to the PC's previous policies, really sped up the age of this government. I think also you can't look beyond the elephant in the room, which is Heather Stephenson, because she may have only been Premier of Manitoba for two years, but it's been quite a turbulent two years. Aside from the policy issues on healthcare, it's also that she spent a lot of her two years apologising for various gaffes, both personal and for the government. Um, she personally had to apologise for not filing conflict of interest papers in time over a purchase of a trio of property sales that she was involved in um, uh, as as a member of as a member of the Legislative Assembly. She's also viewed as unpolished. Um, people talk about her inability to convey the progressive conservatives policies or achievements in any debate platform. And that's in direct contrast to Wab Kinyu, who was very popular in this election and um, people were enthused by him and also enthused by the prospect of the first First Nations Premier. So when you compare that to Heather Stephenson, who I think it's not um, it's not unsurprising that she was the most unpopular Premier across Canada um, compared to someone who is pretty polished, popular and relatable. I think you then begin to understand why the Progressive Conservative campaign unraveled. Um, and the other thing I'll say, Churn, is that allegedly Heather Stephenson ran an incredibly negative campaign against both the NDP and Kinyu personally. I mean, she'd brought up um, his youth charges of drink driving. Um, she also defended the decision not to commission a search of a landfill site for the bodies of two First Nations women who were believed to have been victims of a serial killer. And yes, that's an isolated um, criminal incident, but it actually became quite a huge issue in the campaign and a, a point of principle of 
do you care for the welfare of First Nations people in Manitoba? Um, and Wab Kinyu was able to to really hit home on that issue, which he pledged to um, finance in full. And in fact, he had the backing of the federal government and Justin Trudeau to do so as well. And it, it kind of speaks to the, you know, um, divisiveness of the campaign. It went to quite some dark places, I would say. And what is striking about Heather Stephenson to me was that she was elected in 2021 to be the anti-Brian Pallister candidate, i.e. spend more money on government services, you know, to rebuild public services and, you know, um, and along those lines. So she tacked towards the centre and we saw the impact of this because Brian Pallister had to resign because the progressive conservatives was support was falling through a rock. I mean, I look at some of the statistics about, you know, his party started out 20, the last term, 2020, in the 40s. You know, by the time he resigned, the party was polling at 29%, and it pulled 47% in the 2019 election. Then Heather Stephenson started polls, as she started to take over, adopt a more centrist course, her poll rating started to rise. The PC's party started to rise 29, 35, 38, 41% to come to the beginning of this year. And they and then suddenly during the campaign they tacked right all of a sudden, so this ideological zigzagness among Heather Stephenson I think must have confused a lot of voters about who is the real Heather Stephenson, despite the fact she's been premier for nearly two years. Yeah, and again that's in comparison to the NDP who were quite disciplined on their message throughout this campaign, um, particularly on their key issue of healthcare, but also on on um the indigenous people's rights as well because. The I think it's there's no surprise that they almost swept the city of Winnipeg because as a city across Canada, it has the largest percentage of indigenous population of any major Canadian city. So when you are um, both a First Nations person yourself, but also championing those rights, particularly through the prism of that um, serial killer investigation, I think um, it's, it's no secret as to why they managed to um, wipe the progressive conservatives off the map in Winnipeg, pretty much. And I think what was pretty clever, and I think we saw a bit of this on Labour's strategy during the 2017 general election as well, which they surprisingly did better, is that when the progressive conservatives started to bring out Wab Canoe's youth crime records, and by the way, this is not the first time they did it, I think they did it in the 2019 election, A, Wab Canoe came out very strongly and you know apologised for it and said that I'm a changed person for it. But B then started hitting the progressive conservatives on cuts to police, which I think is actually quite a clever way of spinning that strategy around where they tried to elevate the crime issue, which I think they were trying to tap upon. But I think the NDP started to turn what they perceive as personal disadvantage into advantage. And I think the 2017 election, the UK Labour Party, when the anti-terrorism, um, when we saw the Manchester bombings and the Westminster terror attack, when everyone thought that that would be a boom for the centre-right, when Labour started to bring up police cuts, I think that was very effective as a policy message. So I think it's further evidence of how that could work. And Chen, we've talked about previously how Canada does tend to have quite a distinction between provincial and federal politics, both in what governments are elected, but also in how the party systems operate within these provinces. And there's no clearer evidence of that than Manitoba, where you have a clear NDP PC com contest compared to the federal level, where the NDP are very much the third party in, in all of this. So do you, with that context, do you think there are any federal explanations of these results or implications going forward as well? 
I think there are takeaways, which we will go through all three parties. But Sam, just to show you the extent of vote splitting, how many seats Manitoba sends 11 ridings to um, to Ottawa, how many of them are controlled by the NDP at this stage? Zero? One. The northern seat, the northern indigenous majority seat. Which Outside is where they that... had their strongest performance in this provincial election as well. Precisely. So other, other than that, they had nothing. So um, I, I think that's firstly very important to, um, to state that. Um, so therefore, what are the implications? Let's start with the Liberals. I, uh, let's start with, sorry, let's start with the Conservatives. I think that's more interesting. I think on the headlines, Pierre Polyev would be disappointed at losing potentially another, um, another. sorry, there are two. The NDP have sent two and, um, and federal MPs to, um, to Ottawa. So I need to correct the record. Um, firstly, for the Conservatives, I think this is interesting because on the face of it, this is bad because Pierre Polyev loses a conservative ally in Heather Stephenson. Uh, and that's bad as a narrative. But I actually think it could be good for him because in two years' time, when the federal election could take place, the he doesn't have an even more unpopular Heather Stephenson who could drag votes away. And now he can bash the NDP government up quite badly as well. So I think that's good from that point of view. What do you think of the conservative takeaway? Yeah, I think they'll be disappointed for losing a premier, but I think you are right in that when the next federal election comes around, they're the opposition both federally and provincially, so they don't have to spend time talking about their provincial government record because if um, the timeline of the next election were to stick with what it's supposed to be, which I know there's asterisks on that in Canadian history, but the next election will be in 2025, you'll be sort of like two years almost into an NDP government in Manitoba. So when it comes to the Conservatives standing in that election, they can pledge to be the change candidate both federally and not have to pretend to not be that provincially, if that makes sense. I think that totally makes sense. And that's the point you articulated better than I did. In terms of where the Liberals and NDP would take, I think for their point of view, the Liberals would be concern about how weak the provincial liberals are because if if you it's kind of akin to the conservative party in the UK losing all those councillors when you do not when you have less MPs for the liberals point of view to door knock on these places um you less MPs less staff that they're able to have to door knock on places that means you can deploy a less efficient ground game but I will say that Manitobans as we said have shown a distinct ability to split their votes but Judging by the fact that the Conservatives had to gain seats, we have talked about how efficient the urban ridings are. And once again, in the federal scene, the majority of seats are based in Winnipeg. And it does seem that the Conservatives and Pierre Polyer strategy of running it up in the rural areas will not really impact how you do in Winnipeg. And I think the Conservatives still need to work hard to win over voters in Winnipeg with a changed message which did appeal at a provincial level, Pierre Polyev has a hope that that change message will apply at the federal level as well, if not for the fact the ideology didn't work this time around as well. So I think there are glimmers of hope for the Liberals in the fact that, yes, they'll be disappointed by losing all this stuff, but the urban strategy could hold its seats, particularly in this Pierre Polyev-led Conservatives. I mean, 
You look at the results outside of Winnipeg Centre, the Progressive Conservatives got 57% of the vote. The NDP got 36%. That is a 21% difference. And the last time the Progressive Conservatives lost in 2011, there was only a 16% difference between the Progressive Conservatives and the NDP. So in other words, the rurals got even bluer, but they still lost this election. Yeah, and I think that is the that is the problem for the Conservatives going forward is, do they really have, on the federal scene, much room to grow in um, Manitoba in terms of their overall seat count? But for the Liberal Party, they do have room to shrink because they had four ridings that they held in the federal level in Manitoba uh, in 2021. And this result plus where the opinion polls currently are in Canada, would suggest that that seat count would go down. And we all know that Justin Trudeau really cannot afford to lose any seats if he's going to retain government um, the next time Canada goes to the polls. So it's not so much a federal implication, but more a confirmation of where the federal political scene is at the moment, which is Trudeau's Liberal Party is struggling. And even in the provinces where it does the worst, it's still doing worse than last time. So I think it's almost a confirmation in Manitoba that what we're seeing in federal opinion polls is probably about right. I, I think so too. And I think it's always the perennial challenge to the new Democrats in British Columbia, Alberta, um, to a lesser extent Saskatchewan and in Manitoba. Is how do you convert people who vote provincially NDP to federal NDP? Now, in Alberta's case, I think it's very much the case where um, the Alberta New Democrats are very different from the federal New Democrats because obviously Alberta being such a conservative province, the the local branch of the NDP under Rachel Notley had to tack further to the right in order to win in 2015 and to come close in the recent election. Manitoba and British Columbia is not quite like that. So that could give Jack Meet Singh hope that you know, some of the brand could wash down as well. And certainly if the NDP is in the honeymoon phase, they could do well in some of the urban seats as well. But again, like we have said many times, you know, Canadian politics has shown this, Canadian voters have shown a distinct ability to want a, uh, uh, to vote different provincially based on provincial issues compared to federally as well. So I think there is opportunities for the NDP, but it needs to seize them. There is a potential but let's see how the next two years go, does go, isn't it? Yes, and that's always the perennial question in Canada is that, yes, we try and look at federal implications, but we do have to remember that Canada, like Australia, has quite a rich history of provincial elections almost ignoring um, federal elections and people being very prepared to vote split, not just between parties, but between ideologies as well. And sometimes going the opposite because you have government on one strike or government to be of one strike coming in, you want a completely different government to act as that tension rather exactly, than the collaboration. Exactly. Um, Sam, to close off our podcast, we've talked about two elections from two different sides of the Atlantic, Slovakia and Manitoba. One will argue that in the string of elections to come, it probably is two of the lesser, well, less high profile elections we're covering over this stretch. But can you draw any stories that you can learn between these two sets of elections? I think the main takeaway, if you were to link both of them, because they're, they're both such wildly different stories um, in many ways, but I think one takeaway between both of them is that chaotic governments lose elections. The Slovakian government was chaotic for a whole host of reasons. I mean, they had 
multiple prime ministers within their three-year tenure, ending up in a technocratic government which was left with no choice but to call an early parliamentary election. So that's extreme chaos. But Heather Stephenson also had her own chaos because she had personal gaffes to deal with and also government gaffes to deal with and the overall chaos of trying to find what their ideological lane actually was going to be going into this election. And voters don't like chaos. Voters like stability. They like assuredness. And both um, Alano in Slovakia and to a lesser extent, but similar, Heather Stephenson's Progressive Conservatives did not project the kind of stability that voters were looking for. And so voters rejected it. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, my takeaways is that it's another election once again where incumbents have been turfed out and there will be potentially many more cases to come as people get, as their cost of living pressure bites. Um, and I think the PCs, I do say, did run a cost of living campaign, but I think that people were just tired after the COVID pandemic accelerated the age of the government. Um, it's another election in which two more incumbent governments were turfed out. But I also think as well, Sam, I think in both Manitoba and Slovakia, and I think this is a comment about politics in general, is that voters are increasingly facing stark choices in these elections. The choice between an NDP government and a PC government in terms of policy programs look entirely different. In Slovakia, you are seeing the same thing as well, where a Robert Fico-led government is going to look very different from a Michael Semitha-led government. I cannot help but think of the alternative or the counterfactual if uh, if Heather Stephenson has stayed on or Michael Semita has stayed on at one the and election. And the same is true of the of the elections taking place this weekend, because just yesterday New Zealand made the stark choice to go for Christopher Luxon and the National Party versus um, Chris Hipkins and the Labour. Spoiler alert for when we cover that. And today, I mean, there couldn't be a more stark choice between the two options on the table in Poland. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 and one final point to end it on. I think in both of these elections, it's governments that have lost them. Not necessarily the oppositions have won them, but in Heather Stephenson's mistakes and in the chaos of the last four or three years of Soviet politics, it's the governments that have lost this election. And I don't think we could find too clear results because of that. Well, fascinating chat, Chern. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be breaking down results from three German state elections that have taken place this year. And we'll also be discussing the Luxembourg parliamentary election. And as always, we'll be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections from all over the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Sam, and until next time, we will speak to you soon.